0: Welcome all, December 7th, 2022, a day that shall live in infamy, because Michael Howell is here. Just to remind everyone that December 7th, 1941, was in the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. You know, it's kind of hard to imagine in this day and age all the craziness going on and all the woke nonsense and identity politics and the trivial nature of life in so many ways. Housewives of the Jersey Shore. I'm from New Jersey, so I can say that. Reality TV. What is Kanye saying? What is Donald Trump saying? Who cares? I mean, think about history. Unreal. At any rate, um, let me get Michael on here. So we're delighted to have uh, Michael Howell uh, back with us. Uh, Michael is a great friend. Known him for, oh my gosh, 35 years. He's become quite a uh, well-known uh, um, uh, personality uh, on uh, Twitter. He's been very generous in sharing his wisdom um and so it's a really opportune time to have michael back um given what's gone on in markets i've had some conversations recently with michael um story hasn't really changed it's progressed final chapters have not been written and michael he's had a great call this year being negative on risk assets generally i remember like it was yesterday sitting in his office in london in october of 21 he was foreshadowing what was going to happen. You know, it's not just that Michael was right. He was right for the right reasons. And in a world where everyone fancies themselves as being Captain Stock Picker and following Jim Cramer or David Portnoy, whomever, it's a macro that drives markets. And I know of no one better than Michael, who's got a good handle on uh, all things liquidity. So he needs a more introduction, but for those that you care, follow him on Twitter, Cross Border Capital. He runs an economics consultancy, investment advisory service. Maybe you want to become a client, maybe you don't. Uh, I have no commercial relationship with Michael, but I cannot emphasize strongly enough to what extent he's a must-follow, particularly as everything is all macro these days. So without any further ado, Michael, it's great to have you here again, and um, I yield you the floor. Take it over, Michael. We'll go with it.
1: Great, George. Um, hi, everybody. Thanks for thanks for tuning in. Um, as George says, I mean, uh, you can follow us. Cross border cap um, is the handle on Twitter. Um, we've got a website which is uh, crossbordercapital.com. dot com. Um, and as George has kindly said, we produce research. Uh, we also manage money. Eighty percent of that is fixed income money. About twenty percent of that is equity, um, and we do managed accounts and USIP funds. The Basic idea that we, uh, we have, what drives our philosophy, is that money moves markets. We focus on specific measures uh, of global liquidity, and that covers flows of money through world financial markets, uh, covering central bank flows, uh, traditional bank flows, uh, shadow bank flows, uh, and cross-border capital flows uh, really, a uh, really a sum of about ninety economies worldwide. So it's very comprehensive. We do uh, uh, weekly and a uh, uh, monthly gauges of that uh, of that liquidity pool. As George says, this is what moves markets. Increasingly, it's the macro dimension, and it's really understanding what the central banks uh, and some of these credit providers are really doing. And we basically feel that financial markets are increasingly driving real economies, not vice versa. And one of the key points to understand before I, I sort of maybe say a little bit about our current views is that modern financial systems are not as the textbooks say. It's not about interest rates. It's not about uh, raising money uh, for new capital investment anymore. Th- those days have sadly gone. Uh, that may be occurring out in the east in, uh, in Asia, but it's certainly not occurring in the west anymore. Western financial systems are refinancing systems They're dominated by debt rollovers. Uh, They're not they're not new financing systems for CapEx anymore. And the key point is and this is why financial markets often struggle and why central banks are absolutely key to restoring their vitality is that you've got something like three hundred and fifty trillion dollars of debt worldwide with an average maturity of about five years, which simple math says you need 70 trillion of debt rollovers every year. And that 70 trillion is about seven times what capital markets provide for new capital investment. So you're looking at a 70 trillion of debt rollover compared with 10 trillion of new capital financing. So basically, capital markets have changed their whole complexion. That's what we look at. That's the fundamental idea. And what we're looking at or what we uh, we basically see out there is this huge debt mountain which is really weighing on top of world financial markets and the world economy. And it's that swelling debt, which is really the problem that central banks have to deal with. And basically, the the bottom line of all this is that uh, QE has not gone away. QE is essential for refinancing that debt. Uh, every time central banks go towards a QT, you start to see financial market problems. Now, let me just cut to the chase and then uh, we can maybe have some dialogue or debate on this i put a few charts up which i sent to george which i think are on the uh maybe on yeah, this side yeah, yeah michael hold on i'll get the charts up in a second so keep, keep okay okay talking, keep talking okay. so let me let me keep talking and george will put some charts up but the essence of what we're saying is that the, we're at the point now of maximum tightness in global liquidity in fact we just passed it about a month ago uh, liquidity looks as if it's going to push up next year And it's really coming from a number of avenues. And let me just tick the boxes of what's happening. Number one, you've got oil markets, which are a lot softer. That may not continue, but clearly it's here now. Softness in the oil markets releases a lot of liquidity back into financial markets because oil markets are very, very uh, liquidity hungry. They absorb a lot. The second thing is the dollar has turned, in our view. Uh, It's turned decisively. It's not going to plunge going to have a correction, but that correction is still releasing a lot of liquidity. A strong dollar is liquidity negative. A weaker dollar is liquidity positive, And that's had a major fillip of uh, for global liquidity worldwide. That's another element that's there. A third element is that the People's Bank of China, after something like 15 to 18 months of tightness, are beginning to open up the money taps again. Okay. Uh, the last six weeks have seen the biggest liquidity injections that we've seen in China for eight, about 18 months. Uh, it looks as if it's been being sustained. It may have been connected originally with the 20th uh, People's Congress, uh, where Xi Jinping was, uh, you know, heralded as uh, as uh, dominant leader again, the new Mao or whatever it may, whatever one what title he likes to take. But essentially that was underpinned by more liquidity from the People's Bank but it's been sustained. And the COVID lockdowns basically demand now that China has to goose its economy in some form for 2023. So it looks as if liquidity is going back and it's the people's bank that really drives the Chinese financial system and the Chinese economy. So I think we've finally got a green light there for China. The markets seem to be telling us that something's changing too. The fourth thing, which is a lot more controversial that maybe we'll spend a lot more time on, is that maybe the Fed is also secretly changing policy. Now, that's a sort of, uh, you know, a a shock horror uh, statement for a lot of people. But I think what's what has happened and what has changed is a number of things. But paramount on that is the gilt market debacle in the UK in September when the British sovereign debt market sold off hugely. And that was a wake up call for central banks worldwide. The one thing that central banks cannot afford to see Is their sovereign debt market derailed? And we saw with some alacrity that within a day of announcing a QT programme, the Bank of England was back in the market doing a QE. Okay, they say, okay, that's just uh, semantics. But believe me, it's not. This is a fundamental change. Uh, Since that date, the Bank of England has put out statements to say that they're effectively dividing uh, policy for financial stability from policy to tackle inflation. I think the Federal Reserve is just doing the same thing now. I don't believe that the Bank of England has been an independent thinker here. I think there's a, there's a common line which is being developed. And if you look at what the Federal Reserve has been doing in the money markets, in the US money markets, through this year, you can see they've been withdrawing liquidity. They are behind the pace on their slated QT program. And for the last two months, believe it or not, the Federal Reserve has a effectively added liquidity back into U.S. money markets. That is not a Federal Reserve that seems to be uh, gung-ho and shrinking its balance sheet aggressively. Something has changed. If you look at what Janet Yellen's been saying over recent weeks and even Fed officials uh, in charge of the Treasury market, uh, what they're saying is they want to avoid uh, problems uh, of dislocation in that market at all costs. And basically what you've seen, I would venture, is that through the last four to six weeks is the Federal Reserve has basically taken a view that they need to stabilise the Treasury market. And our measures, which uh, will be on the charts that George will put up, shows that market liquidity in the Treasury market hit a low about six weeks ago and has been gradually picking up ever since. And that is a heads-up to say that something has changed. And broadly, we would suspect, but what you're going to see in 2023 is a move to try and get uh, effectively, the Fed balance sheet up again. Now, that's a controversial statement. It is coming alongside uh, an interest rate policy that may be focused mainly or exclusively on inflation control, and rates will stay higher for longer. But the fact is, alongside that, you've got a separate and now divorced policy, which is about financial stability. And I think that's the thing to watch for 2023. So, all in. Those four factors are telling us that liquidity is likely to be bottoming and picking up through 2023. What does that tell me in terms of a view of markets? It tells me, number one, that I would be moving away from the dollar because I think the Fed is, uh, is now on a different tack. And I think where you would see that movement most clearly is against the yen, because we know that Japan, that Japan is an outlier. And Japan's got a a, well, a recklessly but very loose monetary stance. So if the Fed is moving in that direction, dollar yen should move. And I think it is moving. The second thing that you should see is that the gold price should be firmer. I think that's happening. I think alongside that, and this is not an investment recommendation, uh, let me say, that cryptocurrency prices will bottom and begin to pick up. Uh, but they're a barometer of liquidity. Wait, wait, the-
0: wait, 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 wait. You're not allowed to say that.
1: Crypto is going to go up? Well, I, I, it's purely it's purely liquidity view. It's not a it's not an investment view, George. Uh, it's all the, right, Michael. Go, the, ahead. Go, the, ahead. Go the, ahead. The yield curve uh, is going to start to move towards steepening, and that's another thing to look out for um, come uh, come next year. And what I think you you know you you're also going to start to see PE multiples move up. Now I stress PE, and I'm not saying the E. The E is a very different question. I want to throw a bone out there because that's uh, another thing that I think we can debate. We do a lot of measures of the credit cycle, credit spreads, looking at what uh, the internals of the credit markets are saying. We do a lot of work on the term structure. What those two things are saying anomalously is that this recession or this downturn looks to be mild. That's not what economists are saying. Uh, Many economists are saying. And that's not what the surveys are saying, the sentiment surveys. But it looks as if the message coming out of the broader bond markets is that this is a relatively, at the moment, relatively moderate downturn. And I say that, again, evidence in the charts that um, you can see from George. But that looks as if the E is not as bad uh, as certainly I first feared about six months ago. The evidence seems to be different. And we do a lot of daily work on nowcasting analyses using uh, nowcasting and AI systems to try and understand the economy. and They're both telling us that there's quite a lot of economic momentum re-picking up or restarting uh, around the world right now. So this is not a, a straight downward path in earnings. Uh, things look to be mysteriously uh, holding up. Uh, I scratch my head, but that's, uh, you know, as they say, when the facts change, one's going to start to rethink a view. So let me stop there and see if anyone has questions. Michael, thanks
0: for that. Um, I'm in the process of trying to get the slides up here. They'll be up momentarily. So I'm really taken by your last comment about the severity of any downturn we're going to see. It's not just how deep, which may be mild, but also length. As we've talked about many times in these rooms, time kills more people than price. And when I take your – what you just said, and I look, for instance, at – some other fundamental things i've seen charts i I put this to you you see charts you see graphs of uh, ability to service um debt obligations interest coverage ratios for households corporations whatever um they're all very low i mean sorry sorry their ability to service is very high yeah um now you may say okay fine well as debt rolls over and people move out and they move house and you go from a three percent mortgage seven percent mortgage or some company has to roll the bond they floated. They raised money at one percent a few years ago, and they got to float it at five. Okay, that's fine. but That's going to only be done over time. But the point of all that is, when you look at um, uh, other measures that one would look at, ability to service the uh, indebtedness. I'm not talking about governments. The big assets has been the sovereigns. We'll come on to that in a minute. But at, on the private sector, you look at individuals and maybe corporations. They're in reasonably good shape, which we tend to argue for your point about a less severe recession. Um, And then, um, you know, and so I'm just sort of curious, not just depth, but duration. I mean, how do you think about the duration of any downturn?
1: Well, I think the the duration comes back to um, how quickly liquidity can be restored uh, back into the world economy or back into, in in specific cases here, into the US economy. And I think the, you know, the, the fact, what I'm trying to say is that what's driving Uh, liquidity inflows are a number of factors. Some of them are extraneous to what the Federal Reserve is doing. But the Federal Reserve itself seems to be taking a different tack. Now, we're out on a limb on that. Maybe, you know, we could be proved wrong. But, you know, one's looking at evidence and the evidence seems to be that uh, on a weekly basis, looking at the numbers that are coming out of the Federal Reserve, uh, they are not not, uh, shrinking their balance sheet at anything like the pace that they, uh, had once claimed they were going to. More to the point, the balance sheet is not liquidity. There are other factors, again, in the way, such as the reverse repo, such as the G- Treasury general account, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I think that from what we can glean, from what the Federal Reserve is saying and what the Treasury is saying, there are two things that uh, have come out of the latest Treasury refinancing documents. One, Number one is a view that they're going to explore Treasury buybacks. Now, that may be a little bit like smoke and mirrors, And the Treasury buyback idea is to say what they'll do is they'll essentially hoover up uh, off the run Treasuries. They'll replace them with on the run Treasuries and they'll try and get more market liquidity that way. Now, you know, at the end of the day, that's not more liquidity. It may help the Treasury market functioning. The other thing which is more liquidity is basically increasing issuance of Treasury bills. Now, one of the things that occurred during the Covid crisis And this is, you know, one needs to take a step back to understand the mechanics here. But during the COVID crisis, what happened is that the Treasury uh, stopped its issuance or slowed down its issuance of coupon bonds. In other words, uh, notes and bonds, Treasury bonds, and it upped dramatically issuance of bills. OK, and those bills at the time were quite useful because of all the transfer payments, such as the furlough payments or whatever, that were made during the lockdown process uh, that were put into uh, people's bank accounts, essentially that money uh, ultimately found its way elsewhere in the financial system into the Treasury bills. So the Treasury bills absorbed those. In other words, there was a lot of money in money market funds and they basically invested in those bills that were issued by the Treasury. As time has moved on, those bank deposit accounts have stayed quite flush, but the Treasury bill issuance has dropped away So basically what you've had is that there's been a a lack of instruments for money market funds to invest in. And consequently, this somewhat arcane instrument uh, in the Federal Reserve balance sheet, reverse repos, has been invented to absorb the cash. Now, the problem is that that takes money out of the financial system. Some Fed governors and some analysts have said, well, OK, it doesn't mean that liquidity isn't there. There's lots of liquidity in the system. It's basically just in the reverse repo. That's a somewhat disingenuous comment because it's not in money markets. It's basically siloed at the Fed, uh, not being used. If the Treasury start to issue a lot of bills next year, which I think they're going to do, and I think that they may increase dramatically, you will see that reverse repo account start to fall quite precipitously. And that is a pure injection of liquidity back into the money markets. Fed officials have hinted that they believe that the reverse repo uh, pool is actually damaging the Treasury market. It's why you're getting illiquidity in the Treasury market. I'm not sure uh, I go with that, but, hey, that's what they're saying. So what you're seeing, a number of arcane things that are going on, it may allow the Fed to say, well, we're still doing QE because we're still letting Treasuries roll off our balance sheet, but that's not really accurate. They're basically injecting more money into the markets, or they will be through next year. And that, I think, is a key point to make. Uh, So these liquidity dynamics are really important. And the whole point comes back to every financial crisis that we look back to over the last 20 years or so has been a refinancing crisis in some form. Uh, It's because of a lack of liquidity. And broadly, the Federal Reserve wants to avoid that now at all costs. And that's why I think they're prepared to goose the system with liquidity. Rates will stay high that's not that that's not the same argument but we think liquidity is more important terrific Michael Michael
0: you're mentioning the uh, reserve repo account um, for those of us who don't get into the plumbing of um, uh, money uh, monetary, you know money supply and and on and, and the plumbing in financial markets could you speak also a little bit to the TGA um, I know yep. that's been drawn down you know the conspiracy theorists amongst us are you know, suggesting Janet Yellen, you know, but you know, it's watch what they do, not what they say. You know, J Powell engages in open mouth operations, but then, you know, but then you have Janet Yellen behind the scenes counteracting what he's doing. So, could you speak a little bit about the significance of the TGA account? What has it done? And I know you and I have spoken about this. According to plans, it's supposed to go back up to 700 billion by yep. year end. I'm not sure exactly where it is today, but about full 50. Yeah, but, but also, you know, I, I trust these guys as far as I, I, as I can throw them. So, you know, they say it's supposed to go up. Maybe it'll go up. Maybe it won't. So just talk a, bit, a little bit about, about the TG and how it impacts this whole thing.
1: Okay, so with so those two items on the liability side of the Fed balance sheet, the reverse repo account and the Treasury General account are basically withdrawals of liquidity from the market. So if you take the Fed balance sheet Uh, Other things being equal, if the Fed expanded its balance sheet, it would increase liquidity in the money markets. But you've got to offset that and subtract from that balance sheet the Treasury General account and the reverse repo pool. They are basically money which is siloed out of the money markets on the Fed balance sheet, inactive money. Now, I went through the reverse repo account. The Treasury General account is basically the Treasury's, the U.S. government's account at the Federal Reserve. And it's, it's replenished by tax revenue and it's depleted by expenditures such as transfer, welfare payments or uh, whatever, infrastructure spending, blah, blah. And that tends to fluctuate quite significantly month to month. Historically, it has never been uh, a policy target. It's been basically uh, a float that's gone up and down just to uh, help day-to-day spending. It looked as if under the Trump administration it was being used as a policy instrument because it basically built up, I think, uh, from memory, up to about one and a half trillion at one stage before it was being run down. Uh, but effectively, it can it can swing and it does swing, uh, but it's never really been uh, uh, certainly explicitly as a te- as a policy variable. It could be, but at the end of the day, one's only talking. Uh, maybe about the flexibility here of about 100 billion or so. So it's not really going to trouble the scorer too much. Uh, what you would expect to see in the next six months ahead of the debt ceiling negotiations, and remember the debt ceiling is coming up uh, in all likely, well, in, all, in very high probability uh, in the first half of, uh, of 2023. And basically, there will have to be a vote on lifting the debt ceiling higher. Now, that will be you know, it probably, as it always is, an acrimonious debate. Uh, there may even be a U.S. government shutdown. Who knows? Uh, these things have happened before. But during that period of uncertainty, the Treasury general account tends to be run down. I suspect the number that they're talking about, the 700 billion, which was foreshadowed in the quarterly refinancing statement, is been put there because they want some leeway to run it down ahead of a debt ceiling debate. Um, it will be run down. Then they'll build it up again. As it's run down, there'll be a liquidity infl- uh, inflow into markets. So one of the things that you might be seeing in coming months uh, is that TGA going down. Uh, but, you know, we're talking about it, it could go down, you know, probably in what the de minimis figure is. It's probably the lowest it could go, could probably be circa 150. But you could be still seeing maybe 300 billion uh, going into markets through that avenue that's true michael um i finally managed
0: to get your slides uh, up in the nest um i know you spoke about them i don't know now that they're up there if you want to specifically point out uh, any of the uh, certain charts just because they are up in the nest now
1: yeah let me let me just focus on uh i i can come back to these in time but let let me focus on a couple of those there's, there's about, I don't know, there's about eight to 10 charts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: you, 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 you have 10 of them and I put them up. In oh, the okay. order that, they're up in the order that you gave them to me. So okay. if you want to say chart one chart or just speak to identify what the
1: title of the chart is so people can follow along. Yeah, OK. Well, let let me let me just focus on two or three and then we can come back and debate some of these things. The first one, chart one, is the global liquidity cycle. That's the centerpiece of our research. That's what's summarizing everything. Uh, That's the flow of money, an index of the flow of money through global financial markets. Uh, It's at its maximum tightness point right now. Uh, If you look at what we've put on top of that chart, there is a a sine wave, a a, a, a sort of six year sine wave that's been put on top of that uh, that basically is saying that's how liquidity tends to repeat uh, over time. That just happens to be a fact. It does it in that cycle. I don't know why it does it in in, in a sort of 65-month cycle, but it tends to do it. Uh, that's what the fit is. And where we are now is at an inflection point. It looks like it's going up. Uh, then we've got to try and find reasons why it's going up, which I'll come on to. The, um, the second chart is looking at a market liquidity index. This is not the same thing. We differentiate funding liquidity, in other words, the supply of credit uh, for position-taking or for dealer banks or whatever, from market liquidity, which is market depth. Market liquidity are things like bid-ask spreads, um, how much size you can transact in a market. It's much more granular measures, if you like. It's the end product. And that is measuring liquidity in the treasury market and the U.S. currency markets. It's an index we put together. It's got an index between 0 and 100. Low is bad. High is good. Um, where we are at the moment we've been sort of we're coming off the lows the low points were when uh, Yellen was talking about problems in the treasury market concerns about it uh, it's picked up since then uh, on the right of that uh, page is the equivalent chart for 2008 to show the uh, you know what happened when the Federal Reserve came back in and injected liquidity and the speed with which that market liquidity rebounded uh, but you know we we are trading higher at the moment. The third chart is then looking at wealth, uh, world wealth. So this is all assets worldwide. Um, This is looking at bonds, stocks, uh, liquid assets, precious metals, crypto, residential real estate uh, across all countries worldwide and global liquidity. It looks at the rate of change of both. And what you can see is there's an extrapolation um, uh, into next year which is basically using estimates, what, what, our estimates, based on what we think the central banks are currently saying. So this is our interpretation of what we think their balance sheet movements will be. We know that the, uh, the Bank of Japan is increasing liquidity. Uh, the European Central Bank has basically scaled back its QT dramatically. Uh, the Federal Reserve, well, I, I made the case that I think they're going to run down the reverse repo account uh, and the TGA to some extent. And in China, uh, you've got the People's Bank beginning to goose liquidity there. So it looks as if that, that line may be going up. On top of that, the dollar's going down. Oil prices are lower. Uh, all these things are helping the liquidity story for now. And then chart four, and let me, let me um, make this a penultimate one. Uh, chart four is then looking at the Fed and the SPX, S&P 500. What we show on that chart is Federal Reserve liquidity injections and movements in the uh, S and P 500. Uh, the lead time used to be about 12, 13 weeks. It's uh, it's concertina down. It's narrowed down to about five weeks now. Uh, there's a clear lead time between Fed liquidity injections. This, by the way, is not the balance sheet. It's effective liquidity. So it's 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 uh, it's akin to uh, bank reserve movements, or uh, rather like taking the uh, balance sheet minus cash in circulation minus the TGA minus the reverse repo accounts. It's money that's going through US US uh, financial markets, US money markets. And you can see the impact that has on, uh, on the stock market. The stock market resembles to me a golf ball bouncing down a flight of concrete stairs. And those concrete stairs are dictated by the Federal Reserve. And if you look at the movements of the market, it's pretty much bouncing lower. Now, what I'm saying is not that the market's going to go up from here. What I'm saying is it's still in that pattern of going down. But I believe that we may be seeing an inflection on the degree to which the Federal Reserve is prepared now to reduce effective liquidity in the market. That's the change. And if you look at those steps, the steps are getting smaller and smaller. Uh, and that's, that's not, you know, our extrapolation. That's a fact. That's what's happened. The last chart I just want to focus on is the fifth chart, which is basically looking at the world business cycle. And what we've done here is to look at uh, two measures, the market um, JP Morgan um, world PMI, uh, which is an okay uh, measure, not a, I don't think a great one, but it's not bad. A lot of people look at it. Uh, the other one is one that we construct from all business surveys worldwide, which is basically showing a little bit of a, of a tick up. And we put on top of that, A model, this is an AI model, but let's not get too carried away with AI. This is an AI-based model that looks at commodity markets. It looks at uh, trade-sensitive currencies. It looks at, at credit spreads. And from that information, it infers where we are in the business cycle. And it's been not a bad lead indicator in the past. And what all I'm saying is that you look at that evidence. If you want to go to the next page, that's just a daily track of what's happening uh, and you can see that there's been quite a bounce, and this is not the narrative that you'd expect uh, following uh, a lot of central bank tightening over the last 12 months. There's some resilience there in economies. So let me stop and see see how we digest that.
0: that, that that's that's well, I'm just <laughs> what a what, what, what a tour de force you, you are, Mr. Howe. Um, let's come back on Asia a little bit. Uh, you've got the two, two largest creditor countries in the world, China and Japan. You, 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 in passing you mentioned what's going on over there. Maybe drill down a little bit further, wh- what you think is going on in China. And then, interestingly, Japan. Like, how much are they just going to keep carrying on? You and I have spoken quite a bit about what the BOJ is up to. Um, are they just going to carry on with this policy endlessly? So maybe let's just talk about China and Japan for, for a second
1: here okay well I think the uh, le- let me do the maybe the say the easier one first which is Japan I think what Japan is doing is, or, or what's happening in Japan is basically um, the, the the forward or the preface to what you're seeing in all Western financial markets uh, and that basically is saying everything has originally been invented in Japan uh, be it QE be it negative interest rates be it uh, disinflationary pressures whatever uh, Whatever, whatever you think of, demographic issues, all these things have come to the fore in Japan first. Japan is at least 12 to 15 years ahead in the cycle, in the demographic cycle. And so what you're looking at is a very similar picture uh, evolving in Japan as to what's, what's happening elsewhere now. Um, you know, high debt GDP ratios, all these things, yield curve control um, invented in Japan. What you're going to start to see is that same narrative, uh, those same actions and instruments being used increasingly in the west i would argue that we're a lot closer to yield curve control now than many people would would envision uh, i think we're basically getting you know we we may be there in the eurozone and uh, and the uk de facto anyway and given given what they're doing but one of the things i think you've got to start to think about is that it's this inflation problem is not really the issue okay uh, it's an inconvenience it's troubling sure But the real issue comes the other side of that, which is the fiscal cliff. And what we've got are uh, a hugely a huge deterioration in the fiscal arithmetic in most big economies. Okay, and that's largely demographically driven. And the question one's going to ask is, is how our treasury is going to be funded during this period, during the next couple of decades. The amount of spending is skyrocketing. Just pick up a copy of the. Uh, The CBO report, the Congressional Budget Office report of U.S. finances in the next 10 years. Okay, if you think the Brits have got problems, start to look at the U.S. OK, the U.S. It may be one of the cleanest shirts in the laundry, uh, but there are problems there. Uh, You know, all these other countries have got big, big problems. And that's why governments are going to have to come back and central banks are going to have to be involved in this whole process. Yield curve control and QE is definitely coming back on the agenda like it or not. This is the reality. So in Japan, what we're seeing is a forerunner. Uh, Monetary policy will stay loose. Uh, The yield, the uh, uh, yield curve control will persist and we'll see bouts of yen weakness or more particularly currency volatility. That's the name of the game. Okay. That that's what you're likely to see more and more of currency vol. Now, Let me shift to China, because I think there's an interesting narrative going on. About two or three years ago, I wrote a book called Capital Wars, which was all about uh, global liquidity uh, and the implications going forward. And one uh, one or two of the chapters singled out China and what China was trying to do. And what I said in that book was that China's agenda was very clear and China wanted to displace the dollar within the Asian region, Okay. doesn't necessarily want to make the yuan or the renminbi the dominant currency worldwide. Uh, It's got a more limited regional focus on actually forming um, a, uh, let's say, a a regional currency block. Now, that was kicked off, in my view, in 2016 uh, at something called the Shanghai Accord among the G20 economies in an attempt to get the dollar down. And if you look at Asian currencies through that period from early 2016 onwards, what you basically have seen is remarkable, a remarkable lack of volatility uh, in currencies. They were all being managed. There was less volatility in the forex space in Asia than there was during the fixed exchange rate regime prior to 1971. And that's, that's a big statement. There was deliberate manipulation of currencies going on, and that ended in march of this year and it ended because the japanese let the yen go now this may be and this is going to sound like a conspiracy theory uh and it may well be a conspiracy theory but I'll, I'll say it nonetheless is that if there's one currency cross that you can control if you're a government it's the yen dollar because it's it's of the big currencies it's the least liquid and what's more japanese institutions will follow what moth the ministry of finance says Now, if you look at what happened in, um, I think it was a six to eight week period uh, from early March to early May, the yen fell against the dollar at an annualized rate of 82 percent. Right. That is something I've never seen before. Uh, Markets don't do that to currencies. Only governments do. And I think the reason for that was it was an attempt to destabilize the Chinese financial system uh, following China's tacit approval of the Ukraine invasion by Russia. Now that may as I say it sounds hugely Machiavellian. It may well be, but stranger things have happened. That was followed by the Korean one following the Japanese yen down, and it put a huge amount of pressure on China's currency. The People's Bank of China was struggling through this period to hold the Yuan uh stable. Uh they wanted to keep it around about the mid sixes against the US dollar. Uh, And certainly to stop it going through seven and they tightened monetary policy significantly. It was COVID lockdowns, but it was also the tightness of domestic money and the problems in the economy that were basically causing this. It may be a big step to say this. But another question to ask is, was the COVID was the economy weak because of the COVID lockdowns or was it a weak economy that caused the COVID lockdowns? And that, again, may be conspiracy. But that may be a face-saving statement by the administration there. From that point, uh, what you now have is a a yuan, a Chinese B that has basically broken seven. Okay, they let it go. This is now a clear policy change. Their agenda of creating a euro-like structure across Asia is toast. Um, I don't think they're going to achieve that for a long, long time now. Uh, This is the Chinese uh, and I think they're going to have to change their economic model to try and get growth in a different way, particularly with the, techno- with the technology bans that have been put in place. What we may be seeing, and this is left field, but I wouldn't rule it out, is the yuan devaluing dramatically, uh, maybe to 10 against the dollar. Not going to happen tomorrow, but put them, you know, post that thought, that, that may be there. So what we've got are some quite dramatic changes coming through. And I think the Chinese are going to have to goose their economy significantly for next year. If they do that, you're looking at much stronger commodity markets worldwide. Um, So let me stop there. And there's a there's a lot, uh, you know, a lot of probably points. Yeah, there's a lot to
0: unpack there. Uh, I I urge anyone who wants to uh, ask Michael a question, come up on stage. Please raise your hand. If I don't know you, um, please send me a direct message. Let me know what your question is uh, ahead of time, please. Um, I do have, uh, Michael, one or two questions that people actually sent me, um, that, um, they were, they were curious about. Um, so where are we here? We talked about Asia. Um, I lost my, lost my train of thought. All right. So let's go to, uh, Bobby, uh, Bobby, you're up first. Uh, welcome to the stage. I'm you're, okay, Bob, Bobby. Please unmute yourself. You have a question for Michael.
2: I'd like to hear more about yield, uh, yield curve control. Um,
3: in a scenario like that, uh, can can you just elaborate on that a little bit, please? How would they? How would they? What would happen to? So you,
4: you talk about steepening in the curve. Can Can you just cover that quickly, you know, please?
1: Yeah, I think that you know. Let Let's um. Let, let me sort of describe um, yield curve control quite quite generally. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean, um, you know, fixing, uh, fixing the, the, the top and bottom of the curve. All they could do is try and focus on one particular area of the curve. And it might be rather like the Japanese that they try and control the 10-year. It may be that uh, they do other manipulation. But the, at the end of the day, what yield curve control is trying to do is to stop, is to try and reduce the cost of government debt in some way, okay? And that's the paramount factor to, to think of. And I, I want to run through um, just a, a little, maybe a little anecdote, which perhaps brings home what, uh, what the problems are and why the central banks uh, and the treasurers around the world have been spooked by this. Now, if you go back to the UK, which is where the problems began uh, in September of this year, Uh, the UK budget was what was originally um, thought to have triggered this crisis. If you look at the math behind the UK fiscal situation uh, and you take tax revenue in the UK and you subtract mandatory spending, so things like social security, um, education, health, defence, etc., what you find is uh, that 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 difference between taxes and mandatory spending will cover interest payments on the debt Uh, prior to the budget statement, 1.8 times. So it was 180% coverage of the interest bill, right? After the budget uh, of the tax giveaways, uh, that went down to 120%. So it was still covered, right? Uh, The budget changes they've now put in place within two years will take that coverage ratio to 300%. So it's absolutely watertight, okay? Things look solvent. That same number in the US today is guess what? according to the CBO, it's 80%, right? They also project that within three years, that 80% coverage goes to uh, about 03 30%. So in other words, the US has to borrow currently to pay interest, right? That's what I think is worrying uh, policymakers worldwide. They can see how quickly markets lose confidence. And that's why I think you're going to have to go to a regime of somehow controlling yields now having said that let me just try and put this in a little bit of context is that what you've got looking forward into 2023 is a is a um, a market environment where a lot of people are very upbeat on bonds okay and i think there could be you know decent reason for that uh, given that you may be getting economic slowdown inflation coming down etc bonds being a a disaster this year there could be good reason however There are a number of things to factor into that view. One is that around the inflection points of global liquidity, bond markets are never particularly great performers, interestingly enough. They tend to be stable, static, quite boring, but not really great performers. The best performance from bond markets comes when liquidity is much more buoyant. It's about the middle of the cycle to slightly above. That's when you get the big movement. The second thing to say is if we're correct that you're going to get a, a, a period whereby um, interest rates in the US are higher for longer, uh, rate expectations are going to have to, you know, change a little bit here. Uh, they're not going to be quite so aggressive on the downside. But the third point, which is maybe the killer, is look at the term premium, which is a wonkish concept, I know. But the term premium, like the risk premium you pay for duration or for interest rate risk in the Treasury market, is its lowest figure ever on our estimates going all the way back to the 1960s. So it's never been lower. Now, our figures are similar to those that are produced by the New York Fed. The New York Fed is more or less confirming that fact that you've got almost the lowest figures ever for the term premium on the U.S. market. In other words, it can only go up. And that is something which will detract from performance in the bond market. So all I would say is I think bonds next year are going to be okay. They're going to be boring. I would, you know, just as happily go at the front end as the long end of the market. But generally, what central banks want is to remove volatility from the bond markets. Maybe that's exactly what they're doing, and that's what I would generically call yield curve control. Other people think about it as financial repression. Uh, maybe that's a, you know, another another label to put on it. But it's basically attempts to try and fix part of that curve be it the front or the top end or the middle. Uh, David,
0: um, please unmute yourself. The floor is yours. You have a question for, uh, Michael, David.
1: Yes,
2: absolutely. And, uh, I think that uh, considering the fiscal uh, dominance regime we might see outside of the Eurozone, and if we use, like you just illustrated Japan as the case study of artificial uh, yield control in that sense, where do you think um, Putin's analysts, within the compression of, let's say, European central banks and uh, the abilities to interact with price stability, uh, given, let's say, the, the, the uh, fundamental dis- disjunction you have within uh, GDP developments, one, and do you think that that uh, obviously within your analysis that's going to
1: uh interact within the united states fiscal regime in that sense well if you I, I, okay let me let, let me try and um pin down what you what you're saying um is it that you're saying what is there are other attempts to get others to um sell treasuries Are there attempts to maybe uh control the price of gold are there attempts to create a rival currency, uh, all of the above?
2: Um, yeah, and, and does this
1: compound to a potential structural
2: shift within inflationary pressures that we're seeing on a global scale instead of this cyclical idea that we might have within the onsets of inflation and disin- uh, disinflation?
1: Well, I think, look, my, my view is that I think what what you're likely to see, maybe may the right template to, to look at, is to go back to something that was fashionable to talk of after the GFC, is to think about the 1930s. And if you look at the 1930s, there was a very clear narrative that was going on in the 1930s. Um, one was, um, or even let, let me extend that to the 1920s, 30s, and maybe 40s. So that sort of 30-year period. What you saw was big accumulation of debt, okay, fragile financial systems, uh economic turmoil with the depression um stock market crash etc uh then what you started to see was a lot of currency volatility you saw movements for nationalism and imperialism and then you saw a race for commodities and then ultimately the other side of that after the war you got a lot of inflation so that particular timeline may not be exact but it's kind of rhyming here and i think that you know what we're what we're looking at is a situation where there are two uh, two camps. Uh, you're either you know inside the tent with the US uh, or you're outside the tent. And basically, uh, I think where where those divisions seem to be seem to be being drawn are uh, between uh, the US uh, and Europe in one camp. Uh, you've got Russia, China. I mean, China is not being explicit about its friendship with Russia, but I think it's there. Uh, beneath the surface, I mean, there there is uh, sort of tacit, uh, you know, uh, uh, approval in both camps of, of, of an alignment. Uh, Latin America is kind of difficult. But I think you can see a case for them being lured into that China-Russia orbit. Africa may be up for grabs. And then you've got a smattering around Asian economies, which may either go one way or the other. So I think you are seeing two camps. I think that what you're what you're beginning to get are uh, as well attempts to to draw up a rival currency uh to the dollar i think you know my view is you know good good luck with that it's going to take an awful long time but you know uh, as the chinese say every journey begins with one step and what they're exploring now is to produce a currency this came out of the brics conference uh in july of this year a rival currency which would basically include uh the saudis uh brazil South Africa, um, plus Russia, Russia and China, uh, basically creating a rival unit, Uh, and that may be something equivalent to a stable coin-like thing, but uh, maybe it'll be a a digital type currency. It will use the Chinese uh, digital yuan architecture, I'm sure, but that could be uh, a decent rival. And I think that you know we shouldn't we shouldn't um, you know dismiss that because it's a possibility. In terms of dollar, per, uh, sorry, treasury purchases, I think we've got to remember that something like 30% of treasuries are owned by foreigners, and of that 30%, you can pretty much say that, uh, you know, looking at the, uh, at the character of uh, the various buyers, uh, about half of those are friendly, potentially friendly nations, and half of them are not. Uh, I mean, in other words, half of them are in the uh, Russia, China, South Africa uh brazil camp uh if you like so there are issues here about funding um the deficit long term and these are questions that are raised because it almost guarantees that central banks have got to come back in and you know the reality is that when you've got aging demographics mandatory spending is skyrocketing Uh, there's no way that governments are going to are going to renege on these promises easily politicians don't do that they like spending money but the tax bases. Are shrinking, okay, and they're shrinking because working age populations are in decline. Okay, the U.S. is not so bad here, but Europe is in a terrible situation. Now, where you have politics which are very polarized, and you look around the world, whether it be the U.S., the U.K., whether it be Europe, Italy, whatever country you pick, there is a huge, uh, you know, uh, focus on sort of the 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 polarization of politics, popular populist parties are on the up no politician is going to get voted in if they say we're going to raise taxes so they won't do that so what it comes down to is the path of least resistance is the central banks come back and that's what we're more or less saying that has to happen and so what you've got are financial markets in the future where uh, the role of central banks is not going to go away they're going to be dominant and i think we're in an an environment where you get both cyclical uh, or volatile currency moves And you get volatile inflation bouts as well. So inflation surges and then it comes back, surges and it comes back. And that's broadly what I think a sort of sawtooth pattern. Not that great uh, for asset markets, but I suppose if you're going to be anywhere, you probably ought to be in equities at some stage. Terrific. I got a bunch of questions to follow on that, uh, Michael,
0: but I want to turn over to Uh, KFAB. KFAB, I don't know if you can hear me. Please unmute yourself, KFAB.
3: The floor is yours. Yeah, thanks, George. I apologize. I was scrolling through uh, Michael's excellent slides uh, when you called on me before, and I f- panicked and fat fingered it. So uh, <laughs> I apologize. Um, so, Michael, when when I looked through your presentation and, and was listening to you intently, um, so it seems to me like your your well, first of all, your your global liquidity, your your forecast of that going turning back up appears to be largely based off of. These, this kind of sine wave pattern that's typical? So you, you don't have a necessarily a leading indicator that suggests that that will happen other than that kind of cycle pattern? Is that an accurate characterization?
1: Well, it's, it's partly true, K-Fab. I mean, the, uh, the, the sine wave happens to be the sine wave, but actually in that, I think it was maybe the third chart where there's a dotted line uh, extrapolating global liquidity. That's based on what our view of the latest statements from central banks... So what we've looked at is we've just said, you know, central banks uh, will expand their balance sheets by X. Now, bear in mind that actually until the middle of next year, you're still seeing negative year on year changes. So the flip up is really coming in the second half of next year uh, in terms of year on year movements here. So let's be clear. This is not instant karma. But the point is that is that what you've had is a pairing back of what the ECB are going to do in their QT. You've got the BOJ in Japan just pumping liquidity anyway. And you've got the People's Bank of China, which has basically gone from nothing, uh, you know, flatlining its balance sheet for probably two or three years now to actually starting to step up at a meaningful pace. Plus the fact what we've done is we factored in uh, what the what the Fed could do on the basis that it maintains its 90 billion a month or so uh, of roll off of treasuries. But we assume that the Treasury general account will be brought down um, ahead of the debt's, debt ceiling negotiations. And we've assumed as well that the reverse repo tranche uh, starts to be cut into significantly uh, over the next uh, 12 months. So, so that, that's so... what we do it. Right. So with
3: that timeline and thinking of that and again just kind of eyeballing your the past cycles, meaning that looking at that global liquidity index relative to prior cycles, that appears to turn higher early in kind of recessionary bear markets rather than late. Meaning that if you go back Correct. to the eighty right. So I, I guess I'm trying I'm I'm having difficulty reconciling what that might be suggesting with what you're investment conclusions are because to me it looks like it's a screaming bull market in bonds um, that that would be government bonds in particular and and when you look at the kind of record level of um, diffusion and central bank tightening that we've reached this year and the you know the, the record debacle in bond markets um I don't know. I, it, that would also fit with the, the recovery in wealth, meaning that the a huge part of the decline in global wealth has been due to the losses on the fixed income sign, obviously. Um, so, I, I, I and, and relative to equity markets, I mean, again, that that it, that index appears to turn up early in the bear market rather than late. So, I guess I, that's I'm having trouble reconciling. Yeah, I, I think
1: very very good points. I think the what what I, what I would do to answer that is to say, look, uh, let let's split. If we can, for a moment, the PE from the E. Uh, I think in the stock market, I would have much more conviction that the PE is going up for the reasons of more liquidity uh, than I can say anything about the E. I would have thought the E gets hammered because of what we've seen. But first of all, the evidence uh, that you're getting out of real economies now would suggest otherwise. And the forward looking indicators from the credit markets, uh, you know, cause me to scratch my head and rethink. Uh, I would have thought it would have been worse. It doesn't seem to be. Uh, And if you look at those, there's a measure I put, I think it was slide eight or wherever, which is looking at the credit cycle um, against the US ISM, uh, the the ISM PMI index in the US, the purchasing managers index. What that shows there is that looking at what credit spreads are telling you, uh, it gets a bit worse than this, but not dramatically worse. Uh, And there are other measures that I can go into that we show as well. So from that perspective, that's where I am. I'm uncertain about the E. Uh, you know, I wish I could be more certain, but I, I think it's foggy at the moment. A much higher conviction on the PE. The second thing is about the about the bond market. Uh, I'm with you on that. You would normally expect at this stage of the cycle that rate expectations will begin to crack and come down, uh, but that would be again partly a function of what the real economy is doing, and it's qu- it's humming along quite well right now. The other thing that would come into that equation is what the Fed's going to do with rates. And I think they're going to hold them higher for longer. So maybe rate expectations don't crack so quickly. And the final point, which is the uh, maybe the sort of uh, the key thing for me, is that in past cycles, the term premia has never been so negative. And part of the reason the term premia is very negative right now is comes down to two reasons. One is there's been an absence of Treasury issuance for some Time, as I indicated, particularly through the COVID period, where it was mostly bills rather than coupons, and the coupons are now picking up. And the second thing is there's been a huge rapacious uh, demand for U.S. assets from foreigners as safe assets. So the amount of private sector buying of the Treasury market, in particular, uh, in, despite the sell-off in the last uh, few months, has been, uh, you know, quite dramatic. I think Treasury purchases by foreigners uh, are up 30 percent and it's all private sector it's not the central banks doing it now i don't think that's going to last so the question is if that if that uh, regime unfolds term premium must move up and that would detract from return returns in the treasury market so i think i, I think broadly my views you may make a few gains in treasuries uh i, I don't think it's going to be big
0: Michael, let me just jump in. Uh, 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 By the way, I see we have some more uh, questions up on the stage. So after my question, we're going to do Julian and then Michael Kramer and then Weston. Uh, But before that, Michael, I just want to jump in with it's a good jumping off point, Um, specifically with respect to your inflationary outlook and commodities. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about investment regimes, I mean, you know, we always talk about, you know, whether you're in turbulence or
3: this
2: yep. or that,
0: whatever. So does what it? How does it speak to you about um, inflation, commodities and the types of assets you'd want to invest in the type of world you're speaking about?
1: OK, I think that uh, let, let's let's do those one by one by one. I think the the inflation view that we've got uh, is that uh, inflation is is clearly cyclical. Uh, It's coming back. Um, You know, I think it's I think that we're we're generally in my view is we're generally in a disinflationary world. Uh, I say that because of, of maybe two factors. One of those is that demographics in the West are so, so bad working age populations, which tend to drive drive inflation are either zero small negatives or very small positives. Uh, the fastest growth is in the U.S., where it's probably about 1%, 1.5% per annum. But this is way, way down on what you were seeing 20, 30 years ago. And the big surges in inflation are always associated with uh, increases in working-age population because those younger cohorts tend to be more inflationary, more, more drive, bigger drivers of inflation. Um, the second factor is I think China is still an issue here. And I think the you know the question one's going to ask, and I, I don't know the answer to this, but I'm sort of you know I'm uh, I'm I'm uh, sort of throwing things out, is that with China how are you going to get growth? I just don't think the infrastructure model and the credit you know goosing the economy with credit all the time is going to work in the longer term, and they they can't get consumption started. Uh, the lesson that we saw, uh, and I think this is a realistic uh, statement to make, uh, is that we lesson we we got from the old Soviet Union was that it's very, very difficult to change the structure of the economy quickly. Uh, I spent a lot of time, you know, when I was doing a master's studying uh, centrally planned economies, and the weak point of those economies basically was that they could produce capital goods, you know, way, you know, way into the future. Uh, there were low quality goods for sure. As soon as they started to shift towards consumer goods, the whole thing derailed. They couldn't handle it. And if you look at China, one of the things that people are saying in China is they're going to stimulate consumption. Well, I think good luck with that. Uh, If you take the Soviet model, and I still think the Chinese economy is very close to the Soviet model, uh, what you've got is potentially derailing of the economy. So they've got to go down a different route. And I think that different route is exports. And I think that if they can't compete at the high end because of technology constraints, they're going to have to go mid-range, which means they've got to get the yuan down. So I think that's the other thing that you'd be seeing, a big devaluation of the yuan which is, again, disinflationary for the world economy. So for inflation, that's where I am. In terms of uh, commodity markets, I think that uh, we are in a period where commodity markets are going up. Uh, I think the reality is that China, China's economy drives that. It's got a big uh, appetite for commodities. And we know that. Uh, they may be deciding to do that for strategic reasons as well as economic reasons. So the demand for commodities will be there. China has to import. It doesn't produce a lot of this stuff itself. Um, and if you've got the dollar falling and the Chinese economy reviving, uh, then you're going to get a lot of demand. I mean, you know, just think that, you know, the oil market was, uh, was very strong this year and the Chinese economy was de facto in recession pretty much. Um, so what happens if China starts to grow? So I think commodities go up and, um, what was the, the last point was what we did, um, but oh, yeah, so in terms of oh I know yeah that's right regimes. Yeah. Okay, we're we're in we're moving towards I think we're on the cusp of moving towards uh, a rebound phase. Uh, in a rebound phase, basically what you want are uh, sort of credit strategies. In other words, things like high yield. Uh, that tends to be quite a quite a good area to be in, uh, if this is correct. But I would say you know the the what's different partly about this cycle. Uh, is that commodity markets i mean it depends where you where you look uh, or how you look at cycles but generally speaking we're always very used to the idea that commodity markets pick up at the end of the cycle but actually the evidence of recent cycles are that commodities tend to get moving at the beginning of cycles and i would suggest that commodity markets particularly with a weaker dollar uh, are going to start to move up significantly so, so weaker dog. So, so one question before, before we go to,
0: uh, Michael. Um, so I always like to ask for the average person in the room, you know, what they should be doing how they're looking at markets. I mean, obviously this past year has been very difficult. Index funds were a disaster, 60, 40 portfolio disaster. Um, you know, oil stocks are really the only thing that appreciably went up. So, you know, we're not, we're not into picks here, but just sort of stylistically, if you were, you know, it's that time of the year, it's December, you know, the year ahead review, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. Like what would you tell investors to be looking at? Should they be in equities, bonds, commodities, or within equities? I mean, it sounds like you probably don't want to own. Well, I, I don't know. I want to put words in your mouth. What types of equities sort of stylistically would you be inclined to own?
1: Uh, okay. I think that in, in terms of, um, in terms of sectors, I think obviously, um, you know, energy, mining would be uh, pretty much top of the list i think if you're going to start to get uh, yield curve steepening um banking stocks or financials are not going to be too bad in this environment so i'd start to look there i mean for a bull market or for uh, and i'm hesitant to say it's a bull market but i mean if, if the market wants to go up you've got to have financials performing i mean that that's really a a, a, a necessary condition so i think you've got to start to look at that area um Would you go, would I go for growth rather than cyclicals? Um, I think that, you know, on the basis of what we know about the economy rather than what we fear about the economy, I think the answer is probably yes, you would, Um, because it looks as if, as I say, the evidence is that it looks that it may be a soft landing until it isn't. So I think the one has to go with that, with that, uh, with that statement. Um, You know, as regards um, other asset classes, I think gold does quite well. As I said, I think the gold market could be well underpinned if central banks are moving back onto a monetary inflation tack. And at the end of the day, you know, let, let's look at this realistically. Uh, central banks, in my view, and if anyone detracts from that or has a different view, I'd be interested to hear it. Um, central banks have got to play a bigger and bigger role in debt refinancing uh, in the future, be it of the private sector or more particularly of the public sector. And if the central banks are are creating a monetary inflation through this this environment, gold and precious metals are great barometers of that, commodities generally. Um, But that's what I'd be looking at.
0: Terrific. Okay, we're going to do Michael Kramer and then uh, Weston. Michael, good to see you. Please unmute yourself. you have a question for Michael Howe?
4: Yes, I do. It's great. I don't get to hear people talk about the TGA and reverse repos very often. So I, I, I wanted to ask. Um, so obviously, you know, uh, going into year end, reverse repo activity may very well increase. You might see TGA kind of increase going into year end, uh, drawing, pushing reserve balances down. So thinking about next year, though, as the Fed continues with QT and as you mentioned, you know, reverse repo activity begins to decline and TGA probably winds down. How do you see that affecting overall reserve balances? And then, of course, we know that it has a relationship with equities and stocks. So how do you see that all playing out? Like, where do you see reserve balances maybe finally settling out in the end?
1: OK, well, I think the, uh, the I mean, this is going to sound wonkish for a lot of people, but I think the the where where the Federal Reserve is basically uh, drawn a line in the sand is they think that the, the minimum level of reserves is around about. trillion for u.s banks okay where are we now we're just above three we're about 305 latest figure my reckoning is that the the danger point is higher than that i think the danger point is nearer about 2.8 trillion um and there are various reasons for that but a lot of it's sort of looking at statistical work and seeing where you get get pressure points and on my reckoning um, unless they do something, will be uh, at 2.8 trillion or maybe below that uh, in the early part of next year. So that's why I think things have to change. Uh, and at the end of the day, what is paramount and sacrosanct is the Treasury market. The U.S. authorities simply cannot have the world's most important financial market, U.S. Treasuries, derailing. Uh, and I think they know that. Uh, you know, if uh, I mean, at the end of the day, if the, if the treasury market spike like the British gilt market, uh, you know, the the it, it, the you know funding is toast. I mean, the the U.S. The, the game's up, in other words. They've got to control the treasury market. It's the most important thing uh, for them. And in my view, they're going to start to put liquidity into the system. And whether you call that yield curve control or whatever, whatever, or, you know, QT by a different name, I don't know. But that's what's going to happen. And the way that they do that is to basically bring that reverse repo pool back into money markets, Okay, Think of it as being siloed out of the system. The Treasury has hinted already that they're going to increase bill issuance next year. They don't really give us any guidance as to how much. But I would suspect that you may get a dramatic increase in bill issuance. Um, And they can then use that excuse to both deliver uh, a cosmetic QT so they let treasurers roll off the balance sheet, coupons roll off the balance sheet. They can let the balance sheet per se shrink, uh, but their effective liquidity injections into markets, which translate into banks' reserves, then start to increase. So they'll hold bank reserves up at above what I think is the key threshold, which is about $2.8 trillion. Does that answer the question? Yeah, yeah, actually, I
4: had one more point to that then. I mean, if we're if two point eight trillion is sort of the number, right, which I don't disagree with that, we're, we're going to probably be there before the end of this year. We're, we're talking like, yeah, next we, two, we, three weeks. we may be.
1: Yeah, we may be. That's it. And that's why I think that, you know, I mean, I think we're we're closer than, than maybe people think to this. Um, and consequently, um, you know, if you look at if you look at what the Fed has been doing, I mean, look, after all, the Fed is that despite all this all the fanfare about qt and what they're doing with the balance sheet the federal reserve has actually in- injected liquidity into the money markets net positive amounts for the last two months for october and november hey where's the, where's the qt uh, it, it's 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 not effectively it's not happening they're actually putting their pumping money back into the markets and that's why wall street has basically bounced okay that's the reason now it may be in the next few weeks that money comes out again for sure but it looks as if the whole trend in balance sheet effective balance sheet reduction or getting money out of the system has actually cooled quite dramatically and that that's the point we're making is there some secret or secretive policy change that's going on and i suspect it is yeah well michael you'll, you'll
0: correct me on this because you're the keeper of the numbers but i saw a tweet the other day someone pointed out that on a year-on-year basis On a year-on-year basis. I'm not talking sequentially monthly. On a year-on-year basis. It was only, I think, like in the last month that the Fed balance sheet declined on a year-on-year basis for the first time since 2019. So despite all the talk, it's, it's watch what they do, not what they say. So you're telling us, you want us to believe. I'm not teasing you now. So you're telling us that for all this nonsense, they didn't do a damn thing, and now they're about to blink.
1: Yeah, but I think the question is—is is how the, is looking at the at how they do how they manipulate this, and you know if you look at it from the beginning of this year, the Fed balance sheet's down I think three and a half percent or something. I mean, it's 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 not great, okay. Right. But if you look at the effective liquidity injections into markets, they're down dramatically. I mean, they may be down thirty percent, but that's purely because of this buildup of the reverse repo. And what's happened to the TGA, the Treasury General account? OK, that, that's what's really driven it, not the roll off of Treasuries. So what I'm saying is they can have their cake and eat it cosmetically because they can say, well, OK, well, we're shrinking the balance sheet further next year in 2023. We're good guys. We're doing the QE as we promised. But actually, they're not because what they're doing is they're surreptitiously uh, allowing liquidity to rebound quite significantly. In other words, the proof of the pudding is in bank reserves. Bank reserves will be going up again trust but verify all right by the way i made a mistake here i,
0: I forgot about julian so we're gonna have julian uh with the next question and then west and julian
2: please unmute yourself Do you have a question for michael thanks george um uh, michael i think my question kind of spurs off what you were just talking about i was want to ask about fed remittances to u.s treasury traditionally that number has usually always been positive until yeah. mid-september where it went negative yeah. Uh, I wanted to uh, basically verify with you, is it the right way to look at this as the remittances that the Fed's not making because they're now paying out more interest than they're pulling in? So that amount
1: is effectively the same thing as money printing? Yeah, you, you've got you've to think about the, 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 there's two ways of doing this accounting. I mean, one is that uh, there are there losses on their holdings. In other words, if you mark to market, uh, these these uh, these treasuries, you'd incur a loss. Y- y- technically, that's true, uh, but the Federal Reserve have the, has the luxury of holding the book, and it will redeem them par. So that, that may not be such an issue. The other issue which you cite, which is the more meaningful one, is an operating loss. And that is because basically what they're doing uh, is they're paying out on overnight uh, to the banks for holding uh, cash in cash in uh, at the Federal Reserve. And they're basically getting as an income the coupon. And so if you've got a very low coupon, uh, and you're paying up more, you're making an operational loss. In fact, you're subsidizing the banks. Um, and that is the key thing to worry about. Now, what that is doing is eating into the capital of the Federal Reserve. And if they get down to negative capital, they'll have to have an infusion uh, from the Treasury. Now, it depends, you know, what what almost what religion you are, whether this is important or not. OK, do you have faith or not? And some people say it makes no difference at all. And others say, well, it makes a huge difference. And I think, the, you know, at the end of the day, the market will tell it. OK, we're 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 talking about paper money here. And this is what comes back to the sort of the faith in credit credibility is is Fed credit going to be trusted again if they've got negative net worth or whatever in their balance sheet. And I think that's an interesting question. I don't have an answer for it, but I'll I'll say this, that if you look at what's happened to the Swiss national bank, uh, and as you probably know, the Swiss national bank was a huge, huge buyer of us assets in its balance sheet, particularly technology stocks. And they made a killing until they didn't. The Swiss national bank has lost this year, three quarters of its net capital because of the fall off in technology markets. Now, that means that the Swiss National Bank could actually be, you know, could could lose its capital. It could, it could effectively go into negative capital, in which the Swiss government will then have to make good again, uh, again by the same mechanism. Now, the only point I make is that does this matter for currency markets long term? Is the market in general going to be concerned if the central bank behind a currency has got a negative net worth in its balance sheet? I don't know the answer to that. I think it's a really interesting question. Uh, so, I think if I was a central bank, I'd like to be positive, not negative.
2: The most week, the most recent weekly number for these remittances was twelve billion dollars. So, if I yeah. take that over a month, that's close to fifty billion, or an amount that would effectively cut their QT in half. Yeah. Is that a reasonable statement to make?
1: Um, well, it's uh, you. It's it's combining two different elements. But I think that it's it's not really the same thing as injecting money into the money markets. It's something which is basically the the Fed's remittances uh, to the Treasury would basically appear in the Treasury General Account, effectively. It, that, that's how it would, that's how it would show up. So what you would find is if the if those remittances were going were going negative, uh, they'd have to draw down. Presumably, oh. what you'd see is a further decline in the TGA. I'm not too sure how they account for that, but that that would be. Reasonable to see
0: him. I mean, Michael, I just think it's going to be a, a case of carry on, I mean, nothing to see here, just carry on. So whatever. All right, let's, let's, you've been so generous with your time. I don't. Want, I know it's getting late there. I don't want to keep you too long, but um, I see Weston has a question. He's next, and then we're going to go to Darren. Uh, Weston, please unmute yourself.
5: Hey, Michael. Uh, um, thanks, George. Um, hey, Mike. Good to talk to you again. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm from Real Vision based in Tokyo. Um, oh, hi. Keeping it very. I yeah, uh, so I actually interviewed uh, Mike on uh, the Real Vision Daily Briefing uh, a few weeks ago, mid-November, and we discussed a lot of these kind of key points that Mike's been uh, talking about uh, on the spaces. Um, I just want to read first, just kind of reiterate one point that we were discussing uh, for the sake of the spaces, which is regarding the Bank of England, Bank of Japan, um, and you know, it was my view, um, and and Michael, I think you agree, um, but basically, you know, when you're looking at what the Bank of England did in early October, in which they did. You know, this emergency rush into buy the long end of the guild curve, bid for unlimited size, or you know, temporary yield curve control in order to, you know, stabilize volatility explosion in the long end of guilds and, and prevent the, the the pension system from you know vaporizing. From the BOJ's perspective, watching that, I think that BOJ is looking at what the Bank of England had to do and you know how they had to reverse from QT to QE, <laughs> mind you, while still on a rate hiking path, and right or wrong it reinforced BOJ's stance that this is why we, the Bank of Japan, have yield control in place for six years, and this is why we must never abandon it. Because if we do, the JGB market will blow up just like the gilt market, but in spectacular fashion. Um, and, and so it kind of uh, further strengthened, probably, their resolve on that. Would you, would
1: yeah, you yeah. still agree I, with I that? Think that? I think that makes absolute sense. Because I think all central banks have basically learned the lesson of September in the British guilt market, and they've blinked. And I think it's not just the Bank of Japan. I think the Treasury and the Federal Reserve have also blinked. And that's what I think is going on. I think there is a deliberate separation uh, between policy to control inflation, uh, which is interest rates, and policy to stabilize financial markets, which is balance sheet. And I think if you listen to, uh, I would just, you know, suggest, Listen to a lot of these speeches coming out of Fed governors, and I think you're going to start to hear more and more about this bifurcation between interest rates and balance sheet. I think that that's the way it's going. Um, so, in my view, the the gilt market debacle was a huge was a huge was a mount, was a mountain it was a watershed in this in in markets. So right. I agree. big. So,
5: problem. so, so, uh, and I and I have to, I do tip my hat to Governor Bailey for being able to pull this off. Uh, I think that. If it coincides, however, if you have a situation like that where uh, in the Treasury market, the U.S. Treasury market, in which the Fed, for the sake of financial stable, uh, stabilization and not for stimulus, has to do a sudden emergency QE in which they have to suddenly start buying, you know, the long end of the U.S. Treasury market while still on a rate-hiking path, that c- communication to say, like, this is truly a non QE QE. Um, we, and we are not pivot. it is not a pivot or anything like that, uh, I would have to imagine that's going to be a pretty horrendous sort of, or a very difficult thing to uh, message to markets. Do, do you think that that would I think that probably that, not it, it go is, over so well? I, it's, it would be a messaging task, right?
1: I think it's a really difficult thing because basically they put so much weight on this forward guidance idea that you know what central banks say is gospel Uh, And I think they would uh, they would do anything they could to avoid doing an explicit QE in the sense of rebuying treasuries. So I think what they do is they do it surreptitiously, sort of sulla tabla, uh, by increasing bill issuance, getting the treasury to increase bill issuance so they can run down the reverse repo account. And as I say, you (laughs) think of the reverse repo as a silo, which is out of the market that can be tapped into. And I think that's what they're going to do. But they need to focus on keeping bank reserves in the U.S. at a high level. Uh, and you know, through this, throughout all this, the banks are getting paid to hold those reserves. So it's not so bad to be a bank right now.
5: Right. Um, uh, and then I just wanted to ask your question. This is a separate topic, but I just want to get your kind of general thoughts on this um, this BIS, this Bank of International Settlements paper that just came out um, regarding this like sixty trillion. In dollar debt, um, that's kind of "quote unquote" missing off, uh, yeah. via off, the, off the, the, the currency, currency swaps, stuff. yeah, off balance sheet, like yeah, uh, currency swaps and all that. I just, like, uh, what your what are your thoughts on that? Does that factor it? Does that change anything or factor into anything that you know of, of your models in terms of you know capital flows and sort of uh, li- li- you know um, li- liquidity measures and and, and all that? Uh,
1: thanks. Well, I think the, I mean the, there are two things to say about that. I mean, uh, or maybe three. One one is the number is probably a realistic number. Uh, so it, it you know, it's, can be taken as fact. BIS are pretty good at researching this. The second thing is that it highlights something that it, we know anyway, that the FX swap market is a very important source of liquidity in the world economy. Uh, and it has been pretty much since the GFC. Uh, you know, It's, it's, it's re- more or less replaced repo finance uh, as an additional source of, uh, of capital or credit. Uh, but it's, you know, it's all part of the same shadow banking activity, if you like, based around collateral. The collateral happens to be Forex in this case. Um, and the third thing is that it basically shows how procyclical liquidity is with the dollar. So if the dollar is coming down, what you're going to start to see uh, is a significant uplift in global liquidity. And the impact on the dollar on global liquidity on our measures is actually very dramatic so the fact that the dollars come off, whatever is you know, seven percent or whatever, whatever the number is from the peak, it, is material. It will have an effect of boosting liquidity next year, for sure. Michael, so
0: just tag on that before we go to Darren. We'll do it to Darren and then Michelle. So, Michael, doesn't that all things being equal, the margin uh, suggests that emerging markets is an asset class, and and again, uh, you know. It's a much more heterogeneous group than it used to be. I mean, so I, I realize you can't generalize, but generally speaking, that emerging markets should relatively do better. And in particular, you might want to highlight a few, a few that would be top of
1: your deck card. Yeah, I think, look, I mean, emerging markets and commodities do fantastically in an environment where China is uh, expanding its economy and the US dollar is weakening. Uh, and that's the environment we've, we've currently got. So those are the, those are asset classes that clearly should outperform. I think the the one of the difficulties with with emerging markets now is that you've got uh, a whole variety of different types of markets. But I you know I would think that um, uh, you know some people maybe maybe brave enough to go back into China. You know China at these levels is probably from a value point of view quite an interesting market. But I think that you know the sort of markets that I'd be that I'd be looking at would be. You know markets like Brazil where you've got uh, you've got potential with commodity with commodity prices moving up uh, and I think you know, you, you've also got I suppose bring into account that if people are buying emerging markets as a theme uh, the Indian market which may not be that sensitive to China or that sensitive to the dollar uh, but is basically a, a, a pretty good counter in the emerging market space it is you know close to I think it's close to an all time high already a lot of money has moved out of China into India. But maybe that's the sort of thing that still looks good. And if you look at it from a geopolitical perspective, um, you know, if China is going to be contained uh, in the world economy, India absolutely has to be made a winner. And I think that's, you know, that's what we've got to think about.
5: And
0: Michael, at the other end of the playing field, let's put it another way, because investing is always about you know making choices. It's relative attractiveness. Mm-hmm. And I don't want st- to stuff words in your mouth, but I have my own prejudices and expectations of what you're going to say. Um, what would you not want? It's, a lot of times, you know, as I say, investing is just you can do it two ways. You can just figure out what not to own and just do the rest. What would you not own in the environment that, that, that you're thinking about in
1: 2023? What do you think will do less well? I think the I think the difficulty I think Europe still has. There's a lot of problems in Europe, in my view, uh, and you know it, it's a it's a matter of debate about whether those are discounted properly or not. But I think that the you know the the issues are. from a european perspective energy based and you know i'm i'm not so sure that this this problem has been solved um because well i I know it hasn't been solved, and this this is a structural issue you know energy costs for europe are going to be high and energy supply is going to be a long you know a long-term problem the german economy is not the locomotive it was uh you've got a lot of potential uh fallout from that i would guess within the european union area um you've got uncertainties about italy we know that but generally speaking if that german uh, locomotive is not clicking uh, then there's an issue and germany is being one of, is one of the casualties or potential casualties of decoupling from china generally so where does germany go it's really an export machine and um, you know it needs markets and that you know that's that's going to take time so i would still think uh that that's an, that this whole area is problematic if i was looking uh for areas to for geographically to go into next year i'd certainly be looking at the commodity producers i'd be looking at the emerging markets i'd be looking seriously at japan because i think japan is in many ways a sort of a about warrant is the wrong way of putting it on china but i think it's a decent way to play china if the chinese economy is strong i think japan will benefit from that and you know we know that uh, uh, the yen has devalued a lot already, and that should be good for profit margins in Japan. Right. Okay, uh, let's go to Darren and
0: then Michelle. Darren, good to see you. What's up, my friend?
2: Hey, George. Uh, thanks for having me on here. Uh, I, this is a great conversation. It's, you know, it's it's funny. I, You know, th- these things can be a little bit complex for me, right? Um, but back in the day, when I used to settle some of these tri-party repo transactions, you know, even me, it took a while to, to wrap my head around all of this. I think, um, you know, to add some context uh, to, to what's being said, I added into the nest there at the top a link uh, from the Hutchins Center uh, from the Brookings Institute. So back in 2019, they went through some scenarios of, you know, what actually would happen under some, negative remittances, and uh, they had some forecasted expectations of what those negative uh, remittances would be. Uh, We've already blown way past those. Um, And, you know, so that's not very comforting, right, where these, you know, these, uh, these ivory tower policymakers are already getting, you know, some of their initial estimates blown out of the water on a first take here. But, you know, that being said, I think the question I have for you is, is all of, you know, this interior plumbing with balance sheets and, uh, you know, who's, you know, recording deposits where, is all of that very deflationary or is it inflationary overall in your opinion?
1: Okay. I think therein they're in, they're lies the story. I think the, the, I mean, the way that we look at this is to differentiate two things. One is to look at uh, to, to think of inflation in in terms of two concepts, one is cost inflation, which is basically let's say factors like labour costs or commodity prices or whatever to real costs, and the other element is monetary inflation. Okay, now I think what you've got in the world are two factors that are going on probably simultaneously. You've got some elements of cost inflation. Uh, you've obviously got um, higher energy prices. You've got uh, labor costs which are going up certainly in the West. But then you've also got varying a uh, varying monetary environment. Uh, and what we've had through this year is a monetary deflation, uh, you know viz what's happened to markets, what's happened to crypto, what's happened to gold. And I think next year we're going to get the opposite of monetary inflation. So I think it it depends, you know first of all, on uh, what asset class you're thinking of in terms of what what effect it has and what the timeline is. So uh, I think next year we're going to probably see some residual cost inflation still, um, and we're going to get a dose of monetary inflation coming back. That probably means that high street inflation is sticky, um, but I think that, you know, you, as I said probably earlier on, I think that we're in a world where you see much sharper um, currency cycles and inflation cycles than maybe we've been used to. And that, that maybe is the difference. It's more, more volatility in those areas that I would say. Hey, Michael, Michael. Hi. you got to tell him a story about the diner you went into in the south of the U.S. Oh, this was, yeah. Sorry, I, I, I probably relayed the story before. But this is basically saying when I, was, uh, when I was in the U.S., this is probably about two, three weeks ago, uh, I was traveling back to Washington. and I, I stopped off on the freeway and went into a diner. And it said typically on on the you know, sort of the, the front of the diner, help wanted. But you go inside and on the tables, it's got these uh, these notices that saying uh, anyone that knows anyone that wants to come for an interview will pay you hundred bucks. So that shows you how you know how short labor is. And I think it's a com- you know it's a combination of people that have uh, left the labor force because of COVID, and it's a combination of the immig- the immigration controls that the trump administration put in uh which is an issue and i you know i've got friends here in the uk who uh, were trying to get a visa to go and work in the in the us for a u for a uk company okay and it took them uh 18 months to get the visa approved and they had to put in 700 pages of, pa- of uh, paperwork into the embassy to get the to get the visa that's how tough it's become and that's why i think you've got this uh, there's a labor shortage yeah, Michael, I just want to, before we go to Michelle, I just want to
0: expand on that a little bit. So just listening to you talk, you know, and you're like, okay, well, you know, we can't deny the fact that economic news has been better than we thought it would have been You know, at the margin the last few months. And globally, economy is starting to pick up a little bit, and the Fed's going to become less restrictive. Price of oil's come down. and things you know maybe will start to at least become less bad or reflect to the upside. So maybe my fondest dream of sub 3000 sps is not going to happen. Um, but but further to that, more importantly, just stay with the line of thought you just start to go into. You know, Jeremy Irons, please call your office. I love that scene from Margin Call. Mr. Howe. Yeah. Please explain to me why this isn't highly inflationary, you know, first and foremost, even, even not even going so much about inflation, but it's, it's about profit margins and the power of labor and clawing back their lost um, their lost real incomes. Explain to me why this isn't highly inflationary, um, you know, pretend I'm a golden retriever or a small child. Like, you know, you're, 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 you're throwing all this gasoline on the fire, and, you know, the bull case is, oh, inflation is going to go from eight to, you know, two or four or whatever it is. But but you did say clearly inflation is going to prove to be less sticky. It would be more sticky than than, than many are expecting. Um, it, like, how like, how is this not inflationary? Mean, like, how is this not? Listen, you've got like record shorts in, in, in global bond markets right now. Mm-hmm. because everyone OK? All right. Everyone is short. Um. Actually, I, I take that back. I, I just argued against myself. Scratch that. Pretend I didn't say that. But but what you're just saying, it, it, all at the margin, it means inflation is likely to be higher rather than lower than than people were thinking. If you actually think we're not going to get this this sharp slowdown, I mean, I remember there was a great tweet a few weeks ago. Um, someone put out a they showed a, a snapshot of surveys. We all read the same thing, and it showed that the consensus expectation was for a big recession, and then quoting the great uh, Bob Farrell. When everyone expects one thing to happen, you know, we usually get something else. So there's something else you just outlined. So why is that not really inflationary? You know, I don't mean Weimar. I'm just like, inflation is going to be, you know, six. Yeah, yeah. Oh, six. Okay, fine. Do I hear six? Do I hear or whatever. Six? Yeah, yeah. You know, four, four or five percent. And if that's the case, if that's the case, how in God's name? Okay. Maybe you'll say yield curve control. I get it. But without yield control, like why in your right mind would anybody own a freaking government
1: bond? It's craziness. Well I think that, I think that I think that that's right but I think that what you know what I'm what I'm trying to say is that we're in an environment where in order the governments have got to sell the debt this is the thing, and there's a lot of debt to sell so you're going to have to have some manipulation of the bond market and that may come through the federal reserve or whatever whatever mechanism oh, oh, they oh, 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 oh,
0: okay oh, okay but, but but let's go you're talking about the e and the pe okay fine yep. we talking about the e the world you're talking about you're going to have
1: significant margin pressures will you not you you could well do that. That's I'm I'm not saying that, but I think the I think that the implications are, and that's what I was saying right at the outset. What what I don't know, and what I'm very uncertain about, and what I can't get my head around, is what the E does. But logically, everything that we're saying here is that you've got a lot. There's a lot of margin pressure coming. It's not quite evident yet in some of the numbers, but it looks as if activity is holding up, doesn't it? I mean, you know, I'm uh, I'm not. I'm, I mean, we, we don't forecast economies. We just monitor them. But what we're seeing is it's, it's pretty clear that there is momentum in uh, in economies. And that's maybe what the credit markets, the commodity markets, uh, currency markets are currently telling us.
0: I, I, I mean, what you're basically saying is we're not going to have a, we haven't had a credit cycle and we're not going to have a credit cycle in the type of world you're talking about, which will come as great consternation for most credit investors. Um, but coming back to equities, trying to help everybody in this room. Listening to you talk, I'd want to. I'd want to own companies. This plays into your commodities, metals, and energy thing. Own companies that have pricing power. Correct. Um, and so, some, so some, and I'm not going to mention names. Bad joke attempt coming here. But if I was running an ETF that invested in long duration, loss making, narrative driven, high beta stocks. Which only go up into the right, nothing to do with cash flow generation. It's all about excess liquidity, right? That's that's exactly where I don't want to be in, in the world you Or Did I get that wrong?
1: No, I think that look, I think that you, you don't necessarily want um, uh, the, the, that type of area. But I think that what I'm saying is that it's the I'm thinking much more of if you take a value, if you take a value or cyclical versus growth division, I'm saying that there actually seems to be maybe more attraction in some of these cyclicals, particularly the commodity cyclicals.
0: hundred percent, hundred percent, hundred percent. And but I'm trying to, I'm trying to come up, I'm trying to think of the other side, but like, okay, that's what's attractive. And it's like a seesaw, what's attractive, what's unattractive. Okay. And in the world you're talking about, if at the margin, we're going to have growth surprises, which I would just say relative to consensus in terms of economic growth. Mm-hmm. You are you're more positive than most people. Honestly, you're certainly more positive than you compared to yourself or compared to me a few months ago. That's for sure. But I, but, I, I, I admit that. Yeah. But Yeah, I'm, okay, I, okay, I, okay, I So 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 okay, okay. And in your world, in your world, J Powell doesn't get his 2% terminal inflation. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. And so when I when I am getting a little you triggered me, Michael. <laughs> My this is always the case where you and I are having a good conversation. So so that tells me, you know, the stuff I want to, you rightly point out what you want to own, but the opposite of the converse of what you're saying is very clear: what you don't want to own. The right. profit's get, been getting destroyed is going to continue to get destroyed. Who's going to want to own some garbage, narrative-driven piece of you know whatever on ten times sales that loses money and, and needs more external finance? And I just don't get it. All right, enough. I'm, I'm yep. really upset. Now. All right, I think that, I think D- that's, D- Darren, that's... D- Darren. 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 We got a fight going on here. Help me on this one, Darren. Yeah,
2: George, it. George, let um, you know, just pulling. And you by out the way,
0: hold that. on, hold on, Darren, I got I got a show for for Darren. Okay, Darren, just so you guys know, he is Mister. You're Mister S. Arc. Okay, so Darren, Darren and I kind of are on the same page. So I, I have no commercial relationship with Darren. He's a good guy. we have been in space together. We think the same way. So I suggest he can't say this. He can't, but I can. You all should go take a look at S. Arc. Darren, the floor is yours.
2: Yeah, I think, um, you know, what I would say is, okay, kind of picking up what what you're talking about, and then let's apply it overseas, right? Like, let's look overseas. And just for a moment, right? We were mentioning the, the dollar going down. Uh, you mentioned, you know, potentially China being, uh, uh, you know, expanding, and, and that's kind of a good environment for emerging markets. Uh, what, what do you think in terms of emerging market debt specifically like Mexico South Korea Brazil uh, you know is this is this a time where uh, you know some of these sovereign debt countries uh, you know would lo- look attractive now or is that you know
1: not something
2: that's that's in your playbook
1: yeah I think it I think it fits in absolutely this is the this is the sort of stage where it should it, it, you all, the, all those areas should do pretty well because you've got uh, with the with the dollar going down, uh, with emerging markets having tightened a lot earlier than, uh, than advanced economies, uh, with currencies generally in emerging markets uh, behaving relatively better of this cycle than they have done in past cycles. Um, uh, and with the Chinese economy picking up and commodity markets hopefully getting a lift too, um, it all plays into emerging market debt. Yeah, and what, else, what I'll say for
0: that, Michael, I'm, I'm, I'm still on a rant. just My head's spinning from the rant I just gave you. Um, we know how things go. It's, it's the big cycles. Um, there's that great uh, chart. I'm sure you've seen it for a graph. I'm going to give credit to cuz I think they're the ones who generated it. Um, and they show by decade. I know you've seen it before. The biggest market cap. Decade, the biggest market caps in the world. And so, you know, in 19, I remember when I started Fidelity, I think it was all energy stocks. And then you had, you know, all the Japanese stocks in the late 80s. And then you had uh, all the all the Y2K nonsense, of tech stocks. Then you had China taking over the world. You had, right? It goes in big cycles, all right? It was all a function of macro uh, regimes. And the trick is try to figure out where it goes next, right? In the last couple of years, it's been dominated by um, tech companies. And related to that, and, and, and implicit what Darren was saying as well, um, the U.S. market cap as a percentage of the world is just like off the charts. I mean, Michael, I can remember back in the day when yeah. Japan, Japan. J- okay, yeah. um, Japan was 67% of IFA. For those of you who don't know what EFA is, it's the Europe-Australia-Far East Index. Michael was the emerging market strategist for bearing securities back in the day. Um, in any event, Japan was 67% of EFA. Um, that, that's sort of like the non-U.S. S&P. Um, Japan, I last looked, Mike. You'll correct me. I think it's six percent of the S of E or some cra- or six percent of world market cap. Some crazy low number. All right. So, so what I would say yep. to you: Are yep. we not the opposite? So, the end of the playing field. You have provided the net, na- the narrative or the story or the macro regime. Like I know, I solve for X. X is these U.S. tech companies or the U.S. market in terms of dominance of global market cap. Like this will, this is going to mean revert. I mean, not all the way back because. Technology marches on. There is a secular story, but it's been totally overcooked, you know, strong dollar money flowing into um, uh, into the U.S. uh, Tech stocks. The U.S. has more tech stocks than any other market. Blah, 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 blah. And so fifty dollars in double jeopardy. If I ever said to you, Michael, we look at the pie chart of of, of global market cap right now and then compare it to what it's going to look like a year from now, three years from now. Would you suspect that it'll be less dominated by the U.S.? No, it must be. Absolutely must be, yeah. Everybody leave the US, leave ARC, buy SARC. Okay. Just get the hell out of that stuff. It's not where you want to be. All right. Just it's pretty obvious. I mean, Michael, this has been I, I just want to tell you something. I, mean, I have done a hundred of these spaces, I think, about this year. Some really good ones. You've been in some really good. This one is just off the charts. I mean, we had a great one on Monday with Arjun Murdy, the former Goldman energy analyst. I urge everyone to run, not walk, to listen to that one. This one, Mike, I can't thank you enough. This has just been a complete freaking home run. All right, Michelle, you got a quick question because I want to wrap this room up. Michelle, please unmute yourself. Michelle, are you there?
6: Uh, Yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, Yeah, so I, I guess, um, 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 Michael, thank you. Um, So I guess my question is more, uh, I get it that uh, released, uh, improved the liquidity uh, recently. Uh, I think it probably doesn't want to completely crash the market. But I just have a little um, hard time understanding that they will continue to do that uh, for next year. Because, um, I mean, I thought the whole goal of that is to bring down inflation as soon as possible. Um, well, Michelle, M- Michelle, say-
0: Michelle, let me interrupt you because I think we've covered I don't mean to be rude, but the room's been running out for now in 45 minutes. Sorry, it's been running on for, uh, yeah, an hour and 48 minutes. Um, and we've covered this question. You're completely right. I know where you're going with that. It completely runs contrary to what they claim they want to do. But it's, it's yeah. watch what they do.
6: Yeah, I, I guess my question is, like, how can uh, the P.E. expand when we have 5 6% uh, inflation? I, I'm just having a problem, like, how equity can really do well if, um, like, market think that completely lost the, the battle or, you know, not going to control inflation.
1: Okay, let let, let me let me try and uh, let let me try and answer that. I think the the first thing is that what really matters uh, for P.E. multiples is the amount of liquidity in the system. Okay. the second thing is that is that if you look at the uh, at the impact of inflation on P.E.s, it tends to be a little bit of inflation can actually be quite good for equities because it will pull people out of fixed income uh, into equity markets.
0: So M- M- Michelle, uh, M- Michelle, this is—it's it's funny. I've known Michael over 30 years, and sometimes I just—I get so frustrated—not at him, at me, because I don't get what he's saying. It's almost like an insult to one's intelligence for those of us who look at PEs and valuations, so on and so forth. But I found more often than not that Mr. Howell is correct. It's money that drives markets. He just looks at total supply of money in the world and the total stock of assets in the world. And when there's more money than assets, you get a bull market. And, and more assets than money, you get a bear market. And you can take all the valuations, all the other stuff as a residual. Do I do I have that right, Michael? Roughly? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. So I hear what you're saying, Michelle. But I, I um, um, I, I think Mike Michael would really answered that. Any uh, so, Michael? I, I seriously, you have really outdone yourself here tonight. And and I just want to, and I'm going to make an impassioned plea here now. I haven't done this in a while, but you have just knocked the cover off the ball. I mean. You know, it's funny. A lot of folks who aren't professionals in business, they don't know what how these conversations are. This is very much like the conversations you and I have had over 30-plus years just trying to figure out the future, you know, what the world's going to look like. This has just been extraordinary. And in Michael's honor in, Michael's honor, in Michael's honor, I'm going to ask everyone. I haven't maybe asked in a while, but I'm going to squeeze people now. We're going to put the Jerry Lewis telethon hat back on. Um, I have not asked for people to make contributions to World Central Kitchens for a few months. We did this earlier in the year. We raised over $200,000. Um, this has been unbelievable. Unbelievable, this, this session. Michael, you know, he's too embarrassed to say he wants it. But just suffice to say, you know, this is really highly value-added research that institutions pay serious amounts of money for. And we've had other rooms like this, not quite as good as this one. But if you've gotten value from these rooms over the last few months and from today, I urge you, I implore you, I demand you to make a contribution to World Central Kitchen. Um, you know, it's just unbelievable. The, the advice that Mike, I mean, institutions pay tens of thousands of dollars to, to hear what Michael just said. You got it for free. I'm going to put a link back up for World Central Kitchen. Um, let's, let's try to get this thing. We're at 225 right now. Let's get this thing to over 300,000 before the end of the year. I mean, I'm giving all you guys an incredible deal. No personal gain for me. No personal gain for Michael. I'm trying to pay forward. He's trying to pay forward. Share his wealth and experience, gleaned from, you know, a 35-year-plus career. The least you guys can do is give some money to people who need it.
1: Folks in the good Ukraine. Idea. Good point.
0: Folks, folks in the Ukraine. And so, I'm going to put the link up. Um, you know, I'm a nice guy. I'm a generous guy. I do all this. You know, just enjoy it. I learn a lot. It's all good. But, you know, you guys got to do your fair share. And the, there are people out there in the world who need money a lot more than, than they me. This is a high-class problem we have here. Everyone in this room is trying to figure out how to preserve and increase their net worth. There are people out there who literally can't put food on a table. And so I beseech you, I implore you, I demand you. And if you don't give, I'm going to give all you guys a hard time the next meeting we have. We have Barry Ritholtz next Monday, I think. And it's time to pony up. I'm letting you guys get off scot-free, tying the pony up. It's not for my own benefit. So if, you, if I have a tone in my voice, yeah, because I do, because Michael's given to you, Arjun Murdy's given to you, I've given to you, Tom Thornton, I'm just looking in this room, all, Dave McCoskey, KFAB, I just go down the list. All the people that have been in this room have given without any expectation of getting. They're paying forward. I'm asking you to pay forward. I don't see how you could anyone with an ounce of consciousness recognizing the value that's been proffered here could say no to that. So Michael, this has been unbelievable. You've got done yourself. This is really, I expect this is going to, this room will be listened to by, I don't know, 50,000 people. This is just extraordinary. I urge everyone to reach out to Michael. You can follow him on Twitter, Capital in London. Maybe talk about being a client. That's another possibility. Again, I have no personal involvement here. I'm just trying to, I know a good thing when I see it, and Michael Howell's a real deal. So, Michael, thank you again. This has been. Let's kind, George. Thanks for hosting. Thanks, thanks and it's it's almost midnight. It's almost uh, it's almost what 11 p.m. Where you are right now. This mm-hmm. has been fantastic. And again, I'm going to put the link up for World Central Kitchen again. Please, please, please give generously. Thanks, everyone. We'll do this again next Monday, Barry Reddalls. Good night, everyone. Thanks. Good night. Thanks Take care, us. Michael. Bye-bye. So bye, bye. Bye.